Good evening. How y'all? Good. It's good to see you. I'm glad you're here. Aren't you proud of the Dodgers? <laughs> see, I can't talk about Alabama-Auburn stuff. That's just too divisive, and it's too emotional and too sensitive. But I can talk about baseball in Alabama for the most part. I mean, the Cardinals didn't make the playoffs, and that hurt some people's feelings. Cor I wouldn't you know, miss any names, Corey Covington, but. Why you didn't go there? <laughs> but the Dodgers, my favorite team, liked them since I was a. There's Mervin. Mervin and I are uh, only two Dodgers fans here, I think. So he actually is. Oh, you're. Okay. This Gene's a Dodgers fan, too. Who, who's the other one? Oh, Macy? You're a Dodgers fan. All right. That's good. That's good. I know you guys actually have a reason to be because you used to live in L.A., right? I don't have, I don't have that as good of a reason. I think that um, with me and the Dodgers fan, being a Dodgers fan, my parents didn't like any, my parents didn't care anything about sports. I've, I've, people have asked me before, why, why are you a Dodgers fan and why are you a Cowboys fan? And, uh, and I think it has to do with my parents not being a fan at all. My mom liked Alabama. She, she liked Alabama football, which is how I got that. My dad couldn't care less, thought it was a waste of time, and, you know, if you could be outside working in, in the garden or watching football, then there was a no-brainer. Football is a waste of time in every respect, you know, if you had anything productive to do other than watch sports. So, um, but I decided I was going to be a sports fan, you know, and I grew, I grew up in the 70s, and I decided I wanted to, I mean, people at school, they liked the Braves, or they liked whoever, and they liked the, they liked the Falcons, or they liked whoever in the NFL. And so I thought, I'm going to be, I'm going to be a sports fan. And this is, this is me kind of recreating things over as I look back on what must have happened. But back in the late 1970s and the early 80s, when I was at the age when I was kind of going to be picking my teams, that was when the Dodgers were good. They had... If you're a baseball fan, they had Fernando Valenzuela and Steve Sachs and Pedro Guerrero. I remember some of these guys. Yeah, and, and, and I started liking them. And the Cowboys had Roger Staubach and Tony Dorsett, Drew Pearson, some of these guys. So I think I picked those teams. And anyway, I've, I've stuck with them over the years, good and bad. I didn't have anything to do with First Samuel. It's just kind of a, just an icebreaker, just an icebreaker. Uh, if you're watching baseball, it's... It's uh, Dodgers haven't been anywhere close to the World Series, or haven't been in the World Series since 1988. So they win, they win tonight. They're going to play against the, probably against the Yankees. It's looking like. You think the Astros are going to pull it out? Well, they're going to play the Astros or the Yankees. So I'm excited about it. Okay, but more importantly, is the life of David, and we're in First Samuel 25, and we'll we'll. Uh, camp out there for the next little bit. This is a long chapter and a need chapter, one that I preached on this chapter two or three years ago, so I was studying this and was having some deja vu. Some of this might be repetitive, but um, it's, it's in the story of David, so we're going to go ahead and cover it, even if we did cover it a couple of years ago. Most of it will be new to us anyway. 
Uh, setting the stage for you where we are, First Samuel is the story of the transition from the time of judges to the time of kings. I mean, you had this chaos, this anarchy, no ruler of any significance, and then the people cried out for a king, and so God said, I'm going to give you a king. And that king's going to be, we want a king like all the other nations. So God gave him a king like all the other nations. And that king was a king who didn't care much about God, but he was physically impressive, had some military ability, obstinate, wanted to do things his own way, wanted to be the king, king of kings. He wanted to be respected and all that. And his name was Saul. And so Saul didn't do very well. And God said, I'm going to, I'm going to take the kingdom away from Saul, and I'm going to give it to someone who's better than Saul. And that was a young man of a different family, not in Saul's lineage, a different family, son of Jesse. His name was David. And uh, so David was young when God chose him to be the next king. And we're in that time period from the time that David was young until the time that he's uh, a grown man and ready to take over as king, which happens at the end of 1 Samuel. But we're in that transitional period. We're in the time where Saul knows his kingdom has been taken away. He's been told this twice by Samuel. He knows. But he's fighting tooth and nail to hang on to this. He doesn't want to give up the kingdom. And he doesn't want to be take, it to be taken away from his family. He wants his son Jonathan to be the next king, even though he knows that's not what God has planned. So what we've studied the last couple of weeks are occasions where Saul is hunting David down. We don't have it in this chapter. Get a bit of a break. But he's been hunting David down. And... Through providential situations, God has rescued David. Two chapters ago, it was, they were going around a mountain. Saul was catching him. You know, they're on opposite sides of the mountain, just, you know, cat and mouse. And Saul is marching his people, and they're about to catch up. And, and a courier comes up and says, wait, king, the Philistines are attacking back home. And he has to break off that pursuit of David and go back home and take care of the Philistine threat, right? He, he dealt with that. Then he brings 3,000 of his best soldiers back. He's going to get him this time. Finds out where he is. And uh, David is just doing his best to stay alive. He's, hunt, he's hiding in every nook and cranny that he can find. He, as the story goes, uh, Saul was chasing him. Call of nature came upon him and he went inside a cave and it's going to, Well, the ESV says, relieve himself. Went back to the back part of the cave, you know. Little did he know that in the back part of that cave, David and his 600 men had taken refuge there. And David's men were telling him, David, this is the day that the Lord has made. Look what he's done. He brought him right here in front of you, vulnerable. You can, you can take care of things right now. And David said, I'm not going to draw my hand against God's anointing. So he cuts off a little corner of the cloak and Saul finishes up and goes on out and David lets him get a certain distance away and he comes out and he says, look, this is what happened. I, I had the opportunity to kill you, King Saul, but I didn't do that because I'm not that kind of man. I'm not going to draw my hand against the king's anointed. But here's the cloak. Here's the corner of the cloak that I cut off. And Saul says, you're a better man than I am. I don't deserve it. And so he leaves, at least temporarily, he leaves pursuit of David. And he goes back. So we've got a bit of an interlude now. And that brings us to our chapter, chapter 25, when David is now dealing with just trying to survive. He's trying to have enough food and 
provision to keep himself and his men alive. So we have this interesting story about David and this couple whose names were Nabal and Abigail. Sound familiar? An odd couple in so many respects. Let's look at this. We'll do it like we've done it in the past. Break this down a bit. Instead of reading the whole chapter, all of it, we'll do it paragraph by paragraph and think about what, what it means and, and uh, what it has to say to us. Okay, 1 Samuel 25. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. One, I'm not going to say a lot about this, but one commentary I was, one preacher I was actually listening to on this text, you know, kind of made a pretty big deal out of this, and maybe he's got a point here. In history, we know this, when a great, when a great leader dies, it's a big deal. It's a lot of fanfare. You hear for days about this is what he did, these, this, these are his accomplishments, and just uh, a lot of praise, <coughs> excuse me, a lot of praise of what kind of man he was, what kind of woman she was, all this sort of thing. And Winston, examples the preacher I was listening to used, used were um, uh, when Winston Churchill died, whenever that was, in the 60s, 50s, 60s. And then when President Kennedy died in 1963, that it's a big deal when somebody like that dies. I mean, everything stops and people just focus on that and there are all these eulogies and all this stuff going on. But the preacher I was listening to on this text, you know, he, he made this point that, why don't you have that here? Samuel has been the most important leader in Israel for decades. He was, since he was a little boy, he's been God's man. How much attention does he get in his death? A verse. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Okay, well, there you go. Preacher I'm talking to you about, the one I was listening to on this, says... And I, and I tend to agree with him. When the Bible does something like that, when it deviates from what we would expect in our own readings of things and the way things would normally be done, there's some sort of a theological point or some sort of subtle implication that we ought to pick up on. And that is consistent with the way that we were trying to read the Old Testament in a better kind of way, not reading it as a record of, of, um, of people and their accomplishments so much as we read the Old Testament about a record, as a record of what God is doing and not what people are doing. The emphasis on the people is there to the extent that God is working through these people. So his point being that, yes, Samuel died, but what does that mean for the work of God? God's work is going to continue on because God is not limited by somebody like Samuel. Yeah, God used Samuel for a number of decades. He did a lot of good things through him. He, he uh, you know, judged, judged people. He appointed Saul. He appointed David. He was Saul's counselor. He's David's counselor. He's been a, a stalwart for years and years and years. Now he's dead. So what? God continues his work. And that is 
a way of reading the Old Testament that will change it a little bit for you when you recognize. Um, I mean, maybe, maybe a good example of this would be Isaiah 6. Uzziah had been king for 50-something years, 55 years, something, long time. Uzziah. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah 6, Isaiah has this moment. One of the greatest theophanies in, in all of Scripture. We saw the Lord high and lifted up, his cherubim, smoke, holy, holy, holy. This overwhelming scene where he fell down flat on his face and said, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. That theophany of, of Isaiah 6. Here am I, send me. That's that chapter in Isaiah 6. And, and I think in, in that chapter what you've got is you got Isaiah. What in the world are we going to do? Our king, who's been our king for five and a half decades, is dead. What in the world are we going to do? God says... Isaiah, fall down on your knees and worship because the king hasn't died. I'm still here. I'm still reigning. And, and that image that he gets, that high and lifted up, it's this king, it's this kingdom kind of, um, kind of uh, scene. God is on the throne. That was the impression that Isaiah got. And he walked away from that thinking, oh, I don't even deserve to be there. So see, that, that's kind of the way that the story of the Bible is told. Samuel dies, what's going to happen? Well, David gets up and goes to Ramah. Does it mean God didn't care about the death of his people? No, it doesn't mean that. It just doesn't mean God's work is not contingent on certain people. Uh, so that that's ought to be a comforting thing for us. When somebody, great, when somebody great dies, somebody's done a lot of good, God's work isn't going to stop. He's going to keep working. So... Maybe that's reading a little bit too much into verse 1 of chapter 25, but it's something to ponder at least when you do so within the context of how you read Old Testament stories. Let's go on and see what happens next. In verse, latter part of verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 8. Interesting story. David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of the wife of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. All right, stop there. We'll read on here in a minute, but just stop there for, for a second. This is, you know, this is a, just a neat, neat little story. Uh, David, in, in this world... David and his men basically had been protected. It was a dangerous place. You're raising sheep, and you had these marauding 
bands of people who would, who would rob, who would take sheep and rob the sheep herders and so on. And so David and his men had basically been in an unofficial capacity, apparently, been protecting these, these flocks and making sure that none got stolen and none of the men were hurt and no, none of the goods of Nabal were taken. There's, there's a kinsman relationship here. These, these are of the same general tribe, same distant family. So there's this, they're not just Jews. They're related more closely than that. They're within the same kinsman. And uh, so an odd couple, Abigail is beautiful and shrewd and kind and, and wise. She's in tune with what's going on. And Nabal is a fool. He's a fool. Can't talk to him. Probably we could use stronger language than that to describe it. He is worthless man so but but they're married and, and it I, lo- I love how the story plays out well it's sad in some ways but Abigail is such a beautiful woman and such a capable woman uh, it's really neat to read so it gives us a lot of the details 3,000 sheep a thousand goats he's a rich man it's time for the sheep shearing and David basically sends 10 young men and though this Arrangement. There had been no contract signed that was customary for you provide protection over a period of time for sheep and flocks like this, that you would be compensated in some way, at least in providing some provisions for your people. And that's what he's asking for. It would be expected for Nabal to respond in kind here since his sheep had been protected by David. So verse 9. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and, when, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servant, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? That's a pejorative way of calling David the son of Jesse. There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where. What kind of, what do you pick up on with that kind of statement? What kind of man was Nabal? My, my, me, I, my, my stuff. Ain't getting nothing I got. David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. David's response is not, is not good. It's not good at all. In contrast to how he had acted in the previous chapter, David loses it. I mean, it's almost like David just, his rage absolutely gets the best of him here. And notice the language, how many times he repeats these phrases. David said to his men, every man strap on his sword and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword, and about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. What'd they do with their swords? Strapped them on, right? In case you missed that. That's repeated down below, I think. Um, Well, the, the language... David 
Every man strap on his sword. David strapped on his sword. And every one of them strapped on his sword. I mean, just the repetition of that is violent language. It's David is furious. And he is about to do something he would regret. This is not how a king acts. This is not how a man of God acts. So you see this with David, don't you? Have you noticed this? I mean, he goes to, you know, he goes to the house of the of the priest, and he he, uh, well, he he goes to the Philistines. Remember, and he acts like he's insane, and lets his spit drop down on his beard. Acts like he's he's crazy. He does things like that. And then he has these great moments where he almost—he has an opportunity to kill Saul. And you can make the argument that he could have and should have done it, but he didn't out of respect for the law of God and out of respect for the anointed one of God. He doesn't do it. And then you have this. He's been slighted. He's been insulted. I mean, this was an insult, and it was a strong insult. But this is not. The, the punishment he was about to mete out on Nabal and his family was way out of proportion to the level of insult that he had received. There are many other ways to handle something like this than to do what he was about to do. He apparently, you know, he's, I mean, he's got 400 men, leaves 200 back with the stuff. He's got 400 men, they've all strapped on their soldiers, and they're going to go down there and kill a bunch of farmers. Shepherds, that's what they're going to do. How's he going to feel about that? How's that going to make him look? How's it going to make him look in the eyes of the people? Is that what kings do? Is that what a man of God does? So you see this violent tendency that just kind of erupts all of a sudden here, and it's remarkable how violent the language is. But one of the young men, verse 14, one of the young men told him, Abigail, Nabal's wife. Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this, and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. So the servant knows. You don't go to Nabal with this. That wouldn't have done any good at all. Don't tell Nabal, hey, look, he's coming. Nabal wouldn't have responded well. But he knows how to handle this. He goes to Abigail. So verse 18, she made haste and took 200 loaves, two skins of wine, five sheep already prepared, five seas of parched grain, and 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and he met that she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I, have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. He's going to kill every last one of them. It's crazy, isn't it? What in the world is he thinking? Kill them all. Surely there's some sort of halfway. Surely there's some sort of, you know, you ride down there and you say, look, 
Nabal. Look, here's what we've done, and and, and here's what we would like. We, we don't want to take everything. We, we just want you to pay a fair price for the services we provided. David's rage has overcome him. He just wants revenge. Maybe that's a product of all the stress that he's been under, running from Saul, had the opportunity to kill Saul and didn't, and now he, you know, I don't know. I don't know what's going on with him, but, but he is acting in a way that's inappropriate and is inconsistent with a man of God. So verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the... I love the way she responds. Look, she's, she's an incredibly wise woman. She hurried and got down from the donkey and fell down before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, Own me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is his name. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, but I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. Now listen to this, verse 29. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause, or for my Lord taking vengeance himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Now that is an incredibly tactful speech. Notice the attributes of that speech. Number one, it's very respectful. She knows she's going up against a man who is infuriated. He's dead set on murder been insulted. She can't defend her husband. Her husband's an idiot. So what does she do? She approaches him respectfully. But also, she says a couple of pointed things, doesn't she? And one of those pointed things is, and you got to be careful when you're talking to somebody like this, right? She knows how to play the game. You're going to be king. God's going to make you king. You're going to be king over Israel. And when you get to that point, you do not want this on your record. You don't want this. It would have hurt him politically. It would have, he's, you know, he's going to, part of being a king, I mean, God makes him a king, but the people have to follow the king. And it's not like they just choose to follow whatever king happens to be there. There's, there's all this political stuff, and people decide whether or not they're going to follow. In fact, David, for the first part of his reign, he doesn't have all the nation. Not all the nation follows David. And so I think she's looking ahead, and she's saying, look, if you do what you're about to do, it's going to hurt you. You may be made king anyway, but politically speaking, this is going to be bad. It's going to hurt you among this region of the, of the land, the Calebites. These are pretty powerful people. These people have a lot of political clout. 
and you do what you're about to do, and, and people aren't going to respect that. And don't need to do it. So her response here is very wise. Tactful, and yet forceful, but forceful in a respectful way. And as you know from ancient Jewish culture, women often their voices were marginalized. And for a woman to approach David like this in this kind of way, she does so humbly, but also confidently talk to him like that. And for him to listen, it's pretty remarkable the way she the way she did this. So it's a pretty cool story. You know. David responds well. He responds well. We're almost out of time, but um, verse 30, uh, 30, 32. And David said to Ag- Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the uh, God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be to you, blessed be you who, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me. Truly by morning there had not been left in Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. And Abigail said to Nabal, Behold, he was... Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. You know, so presumably, uh, a stroke, um, some sort of aneurysm, heart attack, something. But it took him ten days to die. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, (coughs) David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of uh, Galam. And so ends the story of Nabal and Abigail. Interesting, yes. I mean, it's, it's, an, it's a neat story. It, it gives you a glimpse into the, the passion of David. David was, um, he could be so reasonable and so kind and so concerned about not doing things rash. I mean, it would have, it's just interesting. The same man who had Saul there using the bathroom in front of him in the back of a cave the man who had caused him all this misery. And David is all philosophical about that. I'm not going to lay my hand against God's anointed. The very next chapter, he gets insulted by some shepherds, and he's planning on going down there and slaughtering a bunch of farmers. And thankfully, Abigail intervenes and stops it. 
So gives you just an idea what David was like and the kind of these kinds of personality traits that are going to come out again and again in his reigning as king. He, he will be the king like he was in the last chapter at times, kind, compassionate, considerate, and then sometimes he's going to be impulsive, impulsive and, and rash, brash, and he's going to do things that he regrets. So you got some of both with David. You're going to see those come out again and again. Thanks so much for your attention. I hope everybody has a good night. I'll see you all on Sunday.